Hello and welcome to Sonnet Cast, William Shakespeare Sonnets Recited, Revealed and Relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 8. Music to hear, why hearst thou music sadly? Sweets with sweets war not, joy delights in joy, why lovest thou that which thou receivest not gladly, or else receivest with pleasure thine annoy? If the true concord of well-tuned sounds by unions married do offend thine ear, they do but sweetly chide thee who confounds in singleness the parts that thou shouldst bear. Mark how one string, sweet husband to another, strikes each in each by mutual ordering, resembling sire and child and happy mother, who all in one, one pleasing note do sing, whose speechless song, being many, seeming one, sings this to thee, thou single wilt prove none. Sonnet 8 makes yet another, perhaps even arguably somewhat more laboured, attempt at coming up with a metaphor to move the young man to making a child, namely music. And it does offer up a significant new revelation, as we shall see very shortly. But first of all, what does it actually mean? Music to hear. Why hearst thou music sadly? You, who are like music to one's ears, harmonious, beautiful, delightful, why are you yourself sad when hearing music? Hearing in inverted commas here. Music, of course, is a metaphor. The young man is likened to a beautiful piece of music, which is something pleasant to be in the presence of. And he's asked why he appears to be sad when hearing music. In other words, being in the presence of something that is meant to be in equal measure pleasant to him. Sweets with sweets war not. Joy delights in joy. Sweet, lovely things do not fight with other sweet and lovely things. War is a verb here. They do not war with each other. And anything that is joyful, such as you are, will naturally delight in anything else that is joyful. Why lovest thou that which thou receivest not gladly, or else received with pleasure thine annoy? Why do you not gladly or happily love that which you receive, but in fact you take pleasure in receiving that which annoys or bores or even actually harms you. The or else here has the function really of an and and seems to be amplifying this as in and even worse, while thine annoy is that which generally vexes or annoys or here more specifically damages or harms or attacks you. To annoy at the time can also mean to attack somebody. And here the suggestion really is that it is something that doesn't just bore or mildly vex the young man, because how would he find pleasure in it if that were the case, but something that maybe is damaging to him is how we can interpret this. So the young man is asked why he rejects that 
which he is offered to receive and instead readily receives that which is not good for him, which may be even bad, positively, actively bad for him. The suggestion very clearly being that we are not talking about objects here, but about people, which would imply that the young man in question is refusing potential partners, as in prospective wives who are being proposed to him while at the same time indulging in encounters with people who might be deemed damaging to him in one way or another. If the true concord of well-tuned sounds by unions married do offend thine ear, and here we get a clearer indication of this, still using the metaphor of music, the poet tells the young man that if he is offended by the sounds for which here read the idea or the prospect on the one hand, but also the talk of harmonious marriage, if this offends him, and note incidentally that tuned here has two syllables, tuned, they do but sweetly chide thee who confounds in singleness the parts that thou shouldst bear. Then these sounds, that's where the talk comes in, do only gently admonish you who defies the role in life that you should be playing. We've had confound before in Sonnet 5, where never-resting time leads summer on to hideous winter and confounds him there, meaning defeats or destroys him. Here, similarly, the young man is told that he goes against and effectively ruins the family life he's meant to lead, and he's doing so by remaining single. Mark how one string, sweet husband to another, strikes each in each by neutral ordering. The musical metaphor continues and now invokes a stringed instrument, such as a lute, for example, where the way the individual strings are tuned is such that they not only stand in a harmonious relationship to each other, but there are actually lutes, especially at the time, that are tuned in such a way that two strings play the same note, exactly, to amplify them, to give them a rounder, fuller sound. And it's very likely, indeed, that Shakespeare knows this kind of instrument and is referring very specifically to this type of tuning. Resembling sire and child and happy mother who all in one, one pleasing note do sing, and these strings are like a family with father, sire, child, and the happy mother who all together produce one pleasing note or chord, whose speechless song, being many, seeming one, which is like a song without words, and which, although it is generated by several elements, the father, mother and child mentioned just a moment ago, seems to be of one voice that sings this to thee. Thou single wilt prove none. Sings to you, if you remain single, you will end up being nobody because you will be undone. That point has been made several times before. If you do not leave any heir behind, your name, your estate will essentially perish with you, as will your beauty. Here then, the poet William Shakespeare 
first wonders why the young man, who is himself so lovely, seems to reject loveliness, when all things lovely should be in harmony with each other and rejoice in each other's presence. And he asks him directly why he will refuse to love that which is on offer, while instead finding pleasure in that which is harmful, at the very least not right for him, but quite potentially harmful. It remains for us to wonder what, or more to the point really, whom precisely Shakespeare has in mind here. But in the context of these first few sonnets, it is not actually so difficult to speculate. This is the eighth iteration of essentially the same message, or the seventh if we count sonnets five and six as one. Get married, have children. So that which thou receivest is unlikely to be a chocolate mousse. It is very likely to be a bride. And if it is one that the young man receives, then that would strongly suggest a potential wife who has been chosen for him. And you've heard me say before, and I've promised I would say it again, and you will hear me say it many more times, in the absence of certainty, likelihood is your friend. We do not know, of course, whether this is actually the case, but it sounds really likely. And we'll come to this again, this very specific point about whether or not the young man in question is having potential brides proposed to him. And you can see that there's a reason bubbling underneath the surface. Of course there is, because one of the candidates that we are able to think about in this context, most certainly this does precisely apply to. And we have noted before that marriage in Shakespeare's day, more often than not, is really quite transactional. And partly or fully arranged marriages are absolutely the norm, as the marriage really has to make sense economically and socially much more than it has to fulfil the love or desire of either of the two people who are getting married. The whole reason why Romeo and Juliet works as a romantic tragedy is because Juliet is from the outset betrothed to Paris, who is deemed much more suitable for her as a Capulet than any member of the feuding Montague family could ever be. And also, importantly, Juliet is absolutely considered to be the possession of her father and absolutely expected to obey her father's order to marry Paris. The idea that she can just choose Romeo because she loves him so much does not cross his mind, which is why the two star-crossed lovers end up tragically dead in the end. Spoiler alert. That's what happens at the end of Romeo and Juliet. The couple die. Back to our sonnet, though. If this is the case, if the recipient of these sonnets is rejecting proposed potential bride, then this gives us a further significant pointer towards his potential identity. It would suggest strongly that we are looking for someone who is not only told to marry, but also who to marry. And that makes this the most revealing quatrain. Remember that a quatrain is a set of four lines of this sonnet. 
We now know that our young man is beautiful and considered to be beautiful, of some status and therefore known to his world, most likely a firstborn or only son, the mirror image or at least bearing a striking resemblance to his mother, obstinate in his refusal to marry and specifically also rejecting the bride or bride who is or who are being proposed to him. Who or what thine annoy is, meanwhile, also, of course, remains open to speculation. But again, in the given context, there are not all that many options. To work as a proper juxtaposition to a young woman that is being chosen for him by somebody else, such as a concerned parent or guardian, the annoy is unlikely to be a skateboard. Not only because skateboards weren't invented then, but also because we are looking for something the young man could be receiving with pleasure in an amorous or sexual or at the very least sensual setting. And that would either be a one or several unsuitable women, possibly of loose character, as one might have termed this once upon a time, whom he has no intention to marry, b one or several people of any gender who offer pleasure as a professional service and who are therefore not eligible for marriage for the young man, see one or several men, be they suitable or no, whom he has no ability to marry because equal marriage as a concept will not exist for a good 400 years yet, or d, any combination of the above. We don't know which applies, but... What we do know is that the poet tells the young nobleman to stop whatever he's doing and instead think of a musical instrument and listen to how harmoniously and how in unison the strings play together to demonstrate to him how he is undoing himself by staying single. Wherein, as it happens, lies another logical flaw in the poet's thinking, we could argue, either that or quite possibly a deliberate contradiction that rather undermines the argument, because no matter how sweetly these well-tuned sounds chide, their speechless song must by now surely grate on the young man. If you are 19, 20 thereabouts, wealthy and handsome and getting a good deal of pleasure from your supposed annoy or annoys, and you keep being told it's time to get married, then even the most dulcet tones will surely, but surely, start to get on your nerves. And here lies another point of potentially great interest to this Sonnet 8. If you get the impression that maybe, just maybe, William Shakespeare is here being just ever so slightly facetious, perhaps just a tad insincere, you could be forgiven. We cannot precisely pinpoint what causes this effect, but Shakespeare knows how to write truth when he wants to write truth, and then it comes across with weight and power. This sonnet is disconcertingly lightweight in both its argument and in its tone. It sounds almost as if I, the poet, were here somewhat going through the motions and telling the young man 
almost, I emphasize almost with a wink, you know as well as I do that what I am saying here is, if not strictly nonsense, then more or less tedious and by now surplus to requirement. You get the message. There are only so many ways of saying it. Here's another one. I don't really expect you to take this any more seriously than I do. We don't know whether that's the case or if it's just an impression that we manufacture in our minds because it suits us to think so. We can't be certain. But what supports this notion that Shakespeare isn't perhaps being entirely convincing here is that as he is writing this, he is living in London, far from his own wife and children, and he is either already or will soon be engaging in pleasures that someone might feel fairly inclined to describe as his annoy at some point before too long, as we shall see even he himself will more or less do so, although he will choose slightly different words for this. And if that's the case, if the poet's heart here really strictly isn't in it, then that in turn further supports our idea, had a couple of times now, that very possibly these first few sonnets in the collection are simply a writing job that Shakespeare has accepted and therefore has to carry out in a plausibly poetic way. And after all, for all its real or imagined or perceived shortcomings, Sonnet 8 is certainly plausibly poetic. So whether any of this is as we here are inclined to suggest, we don't know. Certainly not for certain, you've also heard me say this before, but most fortuitously, we will get further and stronger pointers fairly soon. And so I hope you will join me again next time on SonnetCast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare. Thank you.